we've got a lot to cover today, so we're going to jump right into things today. And we're going to start in Matthew chapter number 3. And Matthew 3 covers Matthew's account of the ministry of John the Baptist and also Jesus' baptism. So we're going to just look at a few things out of Matthew 3, and then we're going to spend the majority of our time looking at Matthew chapter number 4. And so Matthew chapter number 3, look at verse number 1. The Bible says, In those days came John the Baptist, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now obviously, if we want to read the full account of John's call to ministry and his uh, miraculous birth, you go to Luke chapter number 1 to read that. Uh, but here in Matthew, we jump right into his ministry to the Jewish people. And because of that, uh, because Matthew was written to the Jews by a Jew, uh, then we need to find out what John the Baptist's tie is to the Old Testament and uh, to the prophecies. And so uh, Matthew starts by quoting the prophet Isaiah and uh, comes from Isaiah 40 in verse number 3. And it's interesting because all four Gospels quote Isaiah 43 when they bring John the Baptist onto the scene, when they introduce him into the story. They all quote Isaiah 40, verse number 3. John the Baptist is the voice, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. And so John's declaration to the people uh, who have been following him, who are listening to him preach, who are now seeing, of course, we, we, we won't read it, but you know the description of John the Baptist, that he wore camel skin, that he uh, lived in the wilderness, that he ate locusts and wild honey, and so a, a strange man, and so people would go out to see what this crazy guy is yelling about, and so they would hear his message, and it was the fulfillment of that promise in Isaiah chapter 40 and verse number 3. And so that does a couple of things. First of all, it confirms to the Jewish people that are going to be reading Matthew's account that the Messiah is coming because it connects the present day for Matthew, the present day event of John preaching and, and preparing the way for Jesus with this Old Testament prophecy uh, of Isaiah and, of course, many other Old Testament prophecies about Jesus the Messiah. And uh, it brings validity also to all of Isaiah's other prophecies. And certainly we know of all the prophets, Isaiah contains many, many prophecies uh, about Jesus, about his birth, his virgin birth, uh, about his death in Isaiah 53. And so uh, John, fulfilling this prophecy of Isaiah, brings that connection uh, and fulfillment of all of those prophecies. And so John is preaching. He says there, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Uh, his message in verse number two is repent ye for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so John's whole, whole job was to prepare the people that were hearing him to prepare the way for Jesus who would come after him, a preparation for God's kingdom rule. And the response to that the one thing that he wanted people to do was to repent, to repent ye. Now, repentance, we, we can uh, get a, a misguided conception of what repentance is. Uh, most of the time we think repentance is being sorry for our sins, and certainly that is a part of it. But repentance, very simply, is just to change your direction. 
If you're headed in one direction, repentance is to turn around and change the other direction. And so that may be your actions, that may be your thoughts, that may be your focus. For people who are hearing John to uh, preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's turning from their reliance on uh, Old Testament Jew, uh, Jewish laws uh, for their salvation and turning and accepting Jesus as the true Messiah. And uh, John begins with a countercultural uh, message that is going to only continue when Jesus comes to earth. And uh, we don't read much of his message here in Matthew 3, but in other accounts of the Gospels, we see John's countercultural message. One way of thinking, the normal, uh, uh, accepted cultural way of thinking and of doing things is now completely turned on its head because Jesus, the Messiah, has come. The natural way, the way we would usually approach things, the way we would usually respond to things now has to be completely changed because Jesus has come. And John is just setting the table for what Jesus will continue in his ministry and his preaching. And so John the Baptist comes. He's preparing. He's preparing the people for the message that they're going to hear, that Jesus is only going to continue, that he is only going to increase and build upon. And then we have Jesus come into the scene in verse number 13. And so look there, the Bible says, Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized of him. So let's talk just for a moment about Jesus's baptism, because there's a few things that I just want to pull out of this, and then we'll get to Matthew chapter number four. First of all, the significance of Jesus' baptism, there is a connection both backwards and forwards. And so first of all, uh, the baptism of Jesus shows a connection backwards to the Old Testament prophecies. And so Jesus being baptized, there's a connection a fulfillment of more Old Testament prophecies uh, through this action. Uh, of course, uh, let me read the account of Jesus being baptized, and then uh, we'll look at some of these Old Testament prophecies. Verse 14 says, But John forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me? And Jesus answering said unto him, Suffer it, or allow it to be so now, for thus it becometh us, or we need to fulfill all righteousness." Then he suffered or allowed him. Then Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water. Lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. And lo, a voice from heaven, God the Father, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And so that moment, that, uh, that moment in history in Jesus' ministry fulfills some Old Testament prophecies. First of all, Isaiah 42.1, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, mine elect, in whom my soul delighteth. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. I have put my Spirit upon him, the Holy Spirit coming down like a dove, he shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. Uh, Isaiah 61, 1 through 3 says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. And so the Holy Spirit coming down like a dove fulfills uh, this prophecy, this, this, uh, this prophecy in Isaiah of Jesus. Um, 2 Samuel 7 says, And when thy days be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. This is God's promise to David. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Verse 14, I will be his father, 
and he shall be my son. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then Psalm 2, 6, and 7, Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree the Lord has spoken, said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And so that moment when God the Father uh, sends the Holy Spirit down in the form of a dove and then speaks audibly, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. That moment points backwards, connects backwards to the Old Testament. And again, because Matthew is writing to Jews, he has to bring that connection, that, that Old Testament fulfillment into his writing uh, because of who he's writing to. And so Jesus' baptism points backwards, but it also points forwards. The baptism of Jesus shows a connection forward to be an example for believers. Jesus', Jesus baptism is an example for us. Uh, Romans chapter 6, verse 3, it says, Know ye not that so many of us were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. And so the picture of Jesus' baptism is that picture, the foretelling at this moment, but now to us that look back on it, that picture of Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection. And so Jesus gives us that, that, that picture of baptism, that it is to be by immersion, that it's not by sprinkling, that it's by immersion. And the why, that it comes after salvation as an outward expression of an inward decision. And so Jesus' baptism points back to the Old Testament, but it also points forward to us as an example. Uh, there's a few things, a, a few other things that I want to pull out about uh, John uh, Jesus' baptism. First of all, Jesus' baptism identifies with the message of John. It's very important because Jesus, in following what John was preaching, validates the legitimacy of John's message. John 1, 31 and 34, And I knew him not, but that, this is John talking, but that he should be made manifest to Israel. Therefore am I come baptizing with water. And John bear record, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it abode upon him. And I knew him not, but he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, Upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, the same as he which baptizeth with the Holy Ghost. And I saw and bear record that this is the Son of God. And so Jesus coming to be baptized, uh, first of all, it validates John's message to John. Now John knows everything that I've been doing, it was right. Everything that I was saying, it's what I was supposed to be saying. Everything that I was preparing for, now it's all coming true. But it also validated John's message to everybody else who would hear him. And now as Jesus comes, John preparing the way for the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Now he can point to Jesus in person and say, this is the one that you need to follow. And so John, uh, Jesus' baptism identifies with the message of John, but it also identifies with the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel, because Jesus being baptized in the Jordan River is a picture of the nation of Israel being uh, crossing the Jordan River, going into the Promised Land. And so again, because of the Jewish connection in Matthew, that's very important. And then for us, and this is the most important thing, it connects or identifies with the salvation 
of sinners, the salvation of sinners. Now, this is one of the, the most important reasons that you can point to if someone will try to tell you that baptism is necessary for salvation. Because if baptism was necessary for salvation, then why did Jesus get baptized? Uh, obviously, we know baptism is not necessary for salvation. It is, again, as we said, a picture, an outward expression for everyone to see of an inward decision that we have made to follow and identify with Christ. But Jesus uh, 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 taking part in that, being our example, uh, this is important, he identifies with sinners. He gives us that example because he knows what he is going to do for us and what we need to trust in in order to be saved. Isaiah 53, 12 says, Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because this is talking about Jesus, the prophecy of Jesus, because he hath poured out his soul into death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Second uh, Corinthians 5.21 says, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Jesus taking part in an act that really meant nothing to him personally because uh, he obviously did not need to trust in himself. Uh, he was merely setting the example for us, but him taking part in that is an example to us. He is now identifying with us, uh, really foretelling at this moment that he is going to identify with us as sinners on the cross, taking our punishment for us. And so, very important. And then, uh, lastly, about Jesus' baptism, we just mentioned this a minute ago, but Jesus' baptism gives us a clear picture of, of the Trinity, a clear picture of the Trinity, Christ, the son in the water, the Holy Spirit, the dove descending down upon him and God, the father, the approving voice. And we just read that a minute ago. And so we won't take time to read it again. And so Jesus's baptism, very important. It's the connection backwards at the beginning of Jesus's ministry to the Old Testament. And it's a connection forward as an example to us uh, for what he would do for us and how we also need to follow that ourselves. So Matthew chapter number four, let's go there. And this is where we'll spend the rest of our time. Matthew chapter number four, Jesus now is entering his official ministry. He is, his baptism, maybe we could consider that the commissioning of his ministry. That's when God saying, this is my beloved son, whom I'm well pleased. We, we see first the first public expression of God uh, and his God the Father, his connection with Jesus the Son here on earth. And so we have a great victory. Jesus is about to enter into his ministry. And as usually what happens when you have a great victory, now you're going to have a time of testing. And so at the beginning of Jesus's ministry, instead of him going out and preaching to multitudes and crowds and seeing many people saved and turn to him, now we have 40 days of Jesus going into the wilderness, being by himself to be tested or tempted by the devil. And uh, so look at Matthew 4 and verse number 1. It says, Then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And we won't take time to consider what that means. Then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness. Uh, we don't have time to consider all of that. But the thought that Jesus was brought into that time of testing because God wanted him to be. 
That Jesus was allowed to go through that testing, that temptation, because that was the will of God. And that is something that we all need to consider in our own lives. But Jesus is now going to go into 40 days and 40 nights. The Bible says in verse number 2, and when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterward and hungered, and you would be too. Uh, so the 40 days of Jesus fasting is also a picture of the nation of Israel. So again, we keep throwing it back to the pictures of Jesus and his ministry, his life, to the nation of Israel because of Matthew and his, his, his Jewish connection. And so, Matt, or, or excuse me, Jesus is in the wilderness for 40 days. The nation of Israel was in the wilderness for how many years? 40. 40 years in the wilderness, wandering around. But here's the wonderful thing about it. Because when Israel wandered around in the wilderness and they were repeatedly tested, they failed over and over and over and over again. Israel failed. Israel grumbled. Israel tempted God. Israel uh, 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 created a golden calf in order to serve idols. Uh, Israel didn't want to go into the promised land. Israel failed over and over and over again. But Jesus, 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness, when he was tempted, only succeeded. Never failed. One time. And so we see here the connection between Jesus again and Israel. Israel is called the first son of God in the Old Testament. Uh, Israel, Jacob, the prince with God. And now we have Jesus coming on, the true son of God, the better Israel, the new Israel. And uh, so we see the, the connection there. Now, let's look at a few things about Jesus being tempted by the devil. Verse number three says, And when the tempter came to him, and the devil is the tempter, he's the one that brings the temptation, he's the one that brings the opportunity he said, if thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. So, let's look at a few things about Jesus being tempted by the devil. First of all, each one of the devil's attacks first attacked Jesus, and I don't know where the rest of my note went, should be his deity. And I don't think that's on your handout. I think that's just in the digital notes. Each one of the devil's attacks first question Jesus's deity. Let's see if we can get it up there real quick. Boom. His deity. Jesus, the fact that he was God. The fact that he was God the Son and that he had a connection with God the Father. So look, let's look at each one of these. So verse number four, or verse number three again. It said, And when the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. Now, what's significant about that? Well, Jesus has just been in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. He hasn't eaten anything. He hasn't drunk anything. He's been fasting. And verse number two makes sure that we know he's hungry. He's human. He's 100% he's man, 100% God. So he's hungry. And the devil comes to him and says, hey, see these stones right over here? Be nice if they were bread, right? Be nice if they were nice, fresh, warm bread. No? Okay. Uh, be nice, huh? And so the devil, first of all, questioned God's provision. First of all, he questioned God's provision. Uh, Jesus, apparently God's not good enough to take care of you. Why don't you take care of yourself? Question God's provision. Apparently God can't give you food when you need it, Jesus. So why don't you take care of yourself? He questioned God's provision. Uh, secondly, look at verse number 
5, Then the devil taketh him up into a holy city and setteth him on the pinnacle of the temple, the top of the temple in Jerusalem, and saith unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down, excuse me, down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, and dash at any, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against the stone. So the devil's second temptation to Jesus is he takes him on top of the temple, a high, high point, and he says, Jesus, throw yourself down. Because, see, the devil knows the prophecies too at this point. He knows that Jesus is the Son of God. He knows that Jesus is going to go to the cross. He knows that Jesus is going to defeat him in the end. And even though the devil knows he's already lost, he is going to try everything that he can to make sure that he stops God's plan. And if that means killing Jesus now to keep Jesus from going to the cross later, he'll do it. Because throwing Jesus off the pinnacle of the temple will not pay for sin. Jesus going to the cross will pay for sin. And so the devil says, why don't you throw yourself down now, Jesus? Because God said that he would take care of you. He even quotes scripture to Jesus. And so here we see that he questioned God's protection. When he wanted Jesus to turn bread into, uh, stones into bread, he said, uh, God can't provide for you. Or will God provide for you? Then he questions whether or not when Jesus would throw, him off the temp, uh, throw himself off the temple, if, Jesus would, 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 or if God would send his angels and they would catch him before he hit the ground. So he questioned God's protection. Will God protect you? Will God protect you, Jesus? Uh, if, you, if you try to go against God's plan, will God protect you? And then the last one, verse number eight, it says, and again, the devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain. I don't know what mountain it was. Maybe it was Everest. Maybe it was somewhere there in the Middle East. An exceeding high mountain and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. And he saith unto him, all these things will I give thee if thou wilt fall down and worship thee. Or worship me, excuse me. So, Satan takes Jesus up on a high mountain, shows him all the kingdoms of the world, all the, the riches and the, the, the authority and, and the, the elegance and the pomp and the circumstance. And he says, Jesus, if you'll just bow down and worship me, then I'll give this to you. I'll give all this to you. And the devil could give all of that. The Bible calls him the prince of this world. And so he says, Jesus, I'll give all of this to you, even though Jesus will get it one day. So what is he questioning? He's questioning God's prominence. He questioned God's provision with the stones and the bread. He questioned God's protection, whether or not he would save Jesus if he threw himself out of the temple. And he questioned God's prominence when he said, Jesus, will you bow down to me? He questioned, and, and really he's questioning Jesus' relationship with God at this point. He's trying to throw doubt in, uh, into the human, the, the, the man side of Jesus, the God-man. Does God provide for you or will he provide for you? Will he protect you? And is God really prominent, Jesus? And these are the same, the same temptations that the devil will bring to you and I. Will God protect you? Will God provide for you? And is he prominent in your life? And those, it, honestly, the, the temptations that you face... The, the sins that you're, you're, you're tempted, that, that are brought into your life as tests, those are the, the three things that he tests us about. Will God provide for us? Will God protect us? And is he prominent? 
Is he at the top? Thou shalt have known that God's before me. And so the devil tests Jesus here. And, and really, as, as we look at the attacks of the devil, in fact, look at Genesis. Hold your place in Matthew 4. Look at Genesis chapter number 1. Genesis chapter number 1. Because we see that this attack of the devil to question God, whether it's his protection, his provision, or his prominence, this is what the devil has been using since the beginning. Look at Genesis chapter number 1. Look at verse number 3. Or excuse me, look at Genesis 3 and verse number 1. Excuse me. Genesis 3 and verse number 1, this of course is when Satan first appears in Scripture. The Bible says, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the women, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. First of all, he brings a question. He brings doubt into the conversation. Verse number two, and the woman said unto the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the tree, fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. Just about, did God really say that? It, it's enough to put doubt in Eve's mind, because when Eve comes back in verse number three and, and repeats what God says, that's not what God said. Look back at Genesis chapter number 2. God didn't say anything about not touching the tree. He just said, don't eat of it. And so now Satan is creating doubt in Eve's mind about her connection with God. That's, excuse me, what the devil does. He is going to question God. And, and in our minds, he's going to question whether Jesus is God. And let me tell you this, okay? If Jesus is not God, then your salvation and my salvation is null and void. We have a problem if Jesus is not God. And so as you look throughout Scripture, the devil will attack the virgin birth, whether Jesus was born of a virgin or just a young woman. Was he the seed of God, the seed of the Holy Spirit, or the seed of man? He'll uh, attack his sinless life. Did Jesus live his entire life without sin? He'll make us question that. He'll, he'll allow people to try to point out things or assume things or assert themselves into Scripture and, 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 and make us doubt whether or not Jesus lived a sinless life. Uh, he'll he'll, he'll uh, 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 make us doubt whether or not Jesus... And his, his actual death and resurrection took place. And he'll, he'll, he'll bring about questions in our mind for those things. Uh, let me say this too. Okay? Uh, you better be real careful reading things that will bring doubt and change Scripture about whether or not Jesus is God. Okay? Be real careful about that. Be real careful about reading or listening to, to, to authors, uh, so-called preachers, uh, theologians, even Bible versions that will, will change whether or not Jesus was born of a virgin, that will change whether or not uh, Jesus lived a perfect life. Uh, be careful about that because if Jesus is not God, then we don't have salvation. He had to be God. He had to live a perfect life. He had to die on a cross and he had to rise again from the dead for us to have salvation. Very, very important. So Jesus, uh, his uh, uh, encounter with the devil here, we find that the devil first questions Jesus' deity, but then next, each one of the devil's attacks purposed to cause Christ to act independently of the Father. 
And this kind of ties in back what we just talked about, questioning of Jesus' deity and his relationship with God. Now the devil in each one of those attacks is trying to get Jesus to do something outside of the will of God, outside of what God uh, had sent him on earth to do. Uh, So when Jesus is attempted to change bread or stones into bread, uh, now the devil is tempting him to depend on his own resources, to do it in his own power, to do it in his own strength, uh, to, to feed himself by himself instead of waiting for God. Uh, when he uh, tempts Jesus to throw himself off the temple uh, and, and, and God will protect you, Jesus, what's he doing there? He's, he's trying to get Jesus to force the hand of God to protect him physically. Uh, to, to get God to do something for him. Uh, and we don't do that. We don't, we, you're not going to put God in an armbar, okay? Uh, and then his last one, that Jesus would bow down to him and uh, he would give him all the glory of the world. He's trying to get Jesus to bypass Calvary. We know that in, when we read in Philippians that Jesus humbled himself and became as a servant, became obedient to death and became obedient to the death of the cross. And after that, the Bible says, God hath also highly exalted him, given him a name which is above every name, the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So that is happening and will happen because Jesus went to the cross. The devil is trying to get Jesus to say, you know what, I can get all of that without going to the cross. Trying to bypass God's plan. So uh, the attacks of the devil are trying to get us, for you and I, when we are tempted, the devil is trying to get us to act independently of God. To act outside of his will. Because that's what sin is. The very simplest definition of a sin is separation from God. Uh, we just read about it in Genesis chapter number 3, the, the beginning of the first sin when Adam and Eve sinned and eventually God comes down and finds out what happens to Adam and Eve. They're cast out of the garden. They're separated from God. No longer can they walk with God in the cool of the day. That relationship with God is now severed. Uh, The Bible talks about in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, that uh, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's a separation between man and God because of sin. So sin is a separation from God. So if sin is a separation from God and temptation is the opportunity to sin, then what is temptation? Temptation is an invitation to separate yourself from God. Temptation is an invitation to separate yourself from God. When the devil gives you an opportunity to sin, to do this, to go here, to be with these people, to uh, uh, think that, to watch that, to listen to that, uh, to have this attitude or spirit towards someone. When the devil gives you that opportunity to do that, That is an invitation to separate yourself from God. Because when you decide to act upon that temptation and it becomes sin, now we have separated ourselves from God. Now we cannot have the relationship that we used to have with God. Now we cannot have the connection that we should have with God. But when we sin and decide to act independently of God, now we have separation. So temptation is the opportunity, the invitation to separate you, yourself from God. Let me, think, let me say this. Whatever takes us farther away from God is sin. Whatever takes us farther away from God is sin. 
whatever makes us less like God is sin. And the opportunity to do or think or be a part of anything that does that is temptation. Uh, Now, if we know that, and I think we all do, that sin takes us farther from God, that sin makes us less like God, that sin separates us from God, why in the world do we still engage in sin? Why in the world do we still take that opportunity, that invitation to separate ourselves from God? Why do we do that? Well, it goes back to the beginning when Eve, uh, Adam and Eve first were tempted by the devil because when we sin or when temptation is brought to us, the, te- the appeal is that we make ourselves better. The appeal is that we make ourselves better. When the devil brings something to you and he wants you to do this or go here or be with these people, he does not give you the end results. He does not tell you what happens in a week, a month, a year, five years, ten years from now. He does not tell you that. He tells you it's going to make you better. He tells you it's going to make you happy right now. He tells you it's going to make you popular. He tells you it's going uh, to make life easier right now. That's what he did to Adam and Eve. Genesis chapter 3, verse 4. And he said, And the serpent said to the women, Ye shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof. Then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. He said, Eve, life is going to get better if you do this. That was the appeal. When he came to Jesus, all three of those temptations, when you take them at surface level face value, they may lie better for Jesus right then. If you've gone 40 days and 40 nights without eating, and someone says, you have the power to turn stones into bread, how fast are you going to be turning stones into bread? Why? Because that makes life better for you right then. If you have the opportunity to throw yourself off any high point, go up to the top of the church and jump, Knowing that God will protect you, you will not die. That makes life better for you right then. You can do anything. You don't have to worry about dying. You don't have to worry about getting sick and dying. You don't have to worry about getting into a car accident and dying. Life is better for you. If you will just bend the knee to someone, Jesus, and first of all, avoid the cross, which that makes life better in the long run, but you also will get all of the riches and nations and glory and worship and honor in the entire world. That makes life better right then. The devil's appeal is that we'll get better if we take advantage of this opportunity. The problem is, the reality is that life is about to get worse. Life is about to get worse because of that separation from God. Now. We have already gone over time because I am not paying attention to the time. So we're going to stop there and uh, we'll try to pick this up next week because I didn't even get into the most important part. All right, hold your place there because we're going to come back to that, okay? Next week, finish up talking about Jesus and the devil.